Well, it is. Uh, it's always a joy to get to go minister elsewhere, but it's it makes it that much better when you come home because it's just it just feels so right when you're back with your own church family and just the worship that's so familiar and good and rich and uh, uh, you learn lessons every time you go away. It's uh, it's funny the stuff that you bump into. As I was turning my mic on just then coming from the song service into this, I was reminded of one of the lessons that uh, I learned once again this week when I was away. I don't sing well. I can preach. I can't sing. And so uh, I learned the hard way in years past in preaching to have the guys in the sound booth always make sure I'm muted whenever we're in the song service. But I double that up and I mute myself on my pack. And I, I try and do that all the time because I had a couple of times in the past where like, you know, staff member would come in from the hallway at Coates and go, what is going on? Because in the speakers out in the hallway, you're singing a solo through the, you know, through the song service here because my mic was on site. And I've learned to say, you guys turn me off. I turn me off. So the revival that I'm preaching this past week, the sound guy comes up to me in the first service and he hands me the pack and the, the mic and says, uh, now, you go ahead and get this rigged up and, and get it turned on before the service and get it to green. And I'm like, OK, but I, I want it muted. Well, there is no switch to mute it on there. He's like, no, I mute it from the booth. I'm like, no, you don't understand. You mute it from the booth, but I mute it at my pack. And he's like, it doesn't have a mute setting. You just you got to turn it on green and I'll, I'll keep you turned down. And I'm like. Man, you don't understand. I don't, I don't even fully trust our sound people to remember every time. So we double each other up. He's like, I got you covered. And I look at him. I said, don't mess this up. I'm trusting you. This isn't funny. Don't mess this up. So we go through all five services. And I never once hear myself singing through the system. And so I'm like, good deal. He didn't foul that up. And about a day after I get home, my mom and dad had to miss the whole revival because of my dad's surgery. So my mom gets the recordings. And so she texts me about a day later and said, I got to listen to the first message. And it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I especially enjoyed hearing you sing all of the songs before the, the message. And I text back and I'm like, what are you talking about? Get her on the phone. And, and she goes, oh, they started the recording at the beginning of the service. It recorded you singing a solo for the whole song service. So, uh, you live and learn. Mark's greatest hits will be coming out at a Walmart near you. Well, on the on the things more serious, and yes, I will keep my mic muted when we sing here. But uh, we are diving back in today into the. Third And to get back to what is it that really matters. And we saw in the very beginning that what Jesus offered 2,000 years ago is the same thing he's offering today. It is the most straightforward and simple invitation. You, just as you are, just come follow me. He didn't disqualify people because they were jacked up with sin. He didn't disqualify people because they didn't believe. They were full of doubt. They didn't understand who he was. He didn't let that stop anybody 2,000 years ago. And he has the same policy today. When you don't know what to believe about the Bible, when you're not sure if Jesus was real, when you don't know if, if Jesus is divine, when your life is so fouled up by sin and habits that you can't control, exactly where you are, Jesus says, I want you right there, just as you are. I want you to come on into a relationship and you begin to follow me. 
that's really encouraging stuff. Now, we, we've seen how as you follow Jesus, there are some next steps in living this thing out. But what we want to talk about today, I just want to ask and answer one very straightforward. It's a very simple question, and it is this. It's a question that we ought to wrestle with, that we ought to think about. And it's just, if I follow Jesus, what's the payoff? Now, bear in mind what we're doing in this series. I'm saying from the lips of Jesus, from the Gospels, from what Jesus himself said and taught, what's the payoff? What's the end result? What's the end game? Why follow Jesus? What am I going to get out of the deal? When I'm 70 or 80 years old, if I look back over the course of my life and say, man, I am so glad that I fully surrendered to Jesus and that I have followed him for decades because... How do you fill in the blank? What did Jesus say would be the payoff, would be the reward? And I'm just going to tell you on the front end, his answer to that question may surprise you. i tell you what I know is most likely to surprise us is all the stuff that we think of that is not what Jesus said. Let me give you three good examples. For starters, if you've got your outline, you can dive in right here. The first thing that Jesus didn't name as the payoff for following him is you'll be a better person. Now, let's be clear. You will be a better person if you follow Jesus because you'll be quicker to forgive. You'll be more patient. You'll be more kind. You'll be more generous. There will be a lot of things about you that over time you're going to be a better person. But Jesus never said, hey, if you come follow me, I'll make a better dad out of you. You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better student. You'll be a better friend. He never advertised in any of that as the reason to follow him. Here's the second thing Jesus didn't say is the reason to come follow him. You get to go to heaven. Now, we immediately equate that with being the primary benefit of following Jesus, don't we? It's like, if you follow Jesus, you get to go to heaven when you die. I think that was the primary message, whether or not it was what was communicated in church. It was what I carried away from church for most of my life growing up is come follow Jesus because you get to go to heaven when you die. And as a kid, it always seemed like, well, I mean, that'll be nice in like 400 years when I die. You know, when you're a kid, it seems like it's that far away. But it's so interesting to realize Jesus did not advertise this as the reason to follow him. In fact, you may be surprised to find if you'll go back and just reread the Gospels, Jesus almost never referenced going to heaven as a part of his teaching or as some connection with following him. And again, to be very clear, followers of Jesus go to heaven when they die. So I'm not disputing that. It's just that wasn't Jesus' message. It wasn't, hey, come on and follow me so you get to go to heaven one day when you die. He just didn't talk like that. That was not his message. And in fact, when you really get back to Jesus, what he did say and do makes us go, really? That's your message about heaven and how we live? I mean, Jesus famously, when he did reference heaven, he famously assured a guy who never followed him that he would go to heaven. Do you remember what I'm talking about there, don't you? As Jesus is hanging on the cross. And there's someone dying next to him who in that moment recognizes that he's dying next to the Messiah. And he admits that he deserves to be dying there, that he has been guilty of crimes worthy of execution. He's never followed Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you'll go to paradise today with me. You're going to be in heaven with me. Really? The guy never followed Jesus. 
He never did anything Christian. And he lived such a rotten life, by his own admission, he deserved to be put to death. And Jesus says, yep, you're in. You followed all of a few minutes hanging on a cross, and that was it. You know what the implication of that is? You could live your entire life with no regard for God. Live it on your own terms. You could be a very bad person. And if you turn to Christ and become a follower of Christ right before you die, you can still go to heaven. By the way, that's a real comfort for some of us who had loved ones who got saved, you know, near the deathbed or on their deathbed. Because it, it happens. And truth be told, if you think that you can peg exactly when you're going to die, you can live like the devil right up until then, make a change at the end and go to heaven. If you think you can plan that well, have at it. Knock yourself out. You'd be making the biggest gamble of your life. But the bottom line, Jesus didn't run around saying, come follow me and you get to go to heaven. The other thing that Jesus did not say, and this flies in the face of so much of what's happening in Christian circles today is, if you'll follow me, you'll have a more problem-free, more pain-free life. And that is not what Jesus advertised. Now, I'll guarantee you right now, from now until about 12 o'clock today, you can find on numerous channels of television pastors who are essentially saying, this is the promise of Jesus. Come follow me. You'll have the blessed life. You'll, you'll receive all of these things. Your life's going to be better. It'll be so much less problematic and there'll be so many more things lavished on you because you followed. And that is not the message of Jesus at all. And in fact... What we find is that there's a lot of this stuff of people giving us the spiritual formula to getting from Jesus what we want. The, the blessed life, the more pain-free life. You, you've heard these versions of the gospel, haven't you? If you'll do A, B, and C and send your gift to this address, here's what you'll get in return. A new car. No, it's not a new car, but it's, it, it's that kind of thing. It's a sales pitch. If you'll do A, B, and C, voila, here's what you get. Can I just tell you, that's not Christianity. That's magic. That's magic. And there's a lot of Christian magic out there. There's a lot of Christian magic on TV today. Come on, watch me. Watch me do this. We're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then you do this, and then woof. You get these results. It's so much bigger than A plus B plus C. You get this magical result. That's magic. And here's what you need to know about magic. All magic works some of the time. It does. All magic will work sometimes. So you use whatever magic you want to. You... you Carry around your four-leaf clover or your rabbit's foot or you cross your fingers or, you know, whatever your superstition is, whatever magic it is that you practice, you practice it and sometimes it'll work because all magic works. Sometimes I'll give you a good example of how ridiculously at an extreme Christianity gets mixed with magic today. How many of you ever seen have ever seen the little statues of St. Joseph? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Here's a better question. How many of you know what happens when you bury St. Joseph in your yard? <laughs> Some of you are going, I know. <laughs> Can I tell you what happens when you bury St. Joseph in your yard? Nothing. 
You can buy a little statue of St. Joseph for $6.98 on Amazon. People do it in droves. And the reason that they buy St. Joseph is because it's a part of a formula. When you need to sell your house, you bury St. Joseph in your yard, say a little prayer, and this is how you invoke the favor of God. Your house will sell immediately if you bury St. Joseph in your yard. This is a... This is something that Christians have learned through the centuries and it works and you just need to do it. And just like all magic, it works sometimes. Just like taking a sugar pill. You know when they do research on new medications, they always do these studies where they treat the, the people with the new drug and part of the, the group that they're studying, they don't give them anything but sugar pills. And what they always have to find in order for a drug to be approved is they have to get more people better with the actual treatment than the people they get better with the sugar pills because there's always like you know 20 or 22% that the sugar pills made them so much better which is essentially magic. It has the same effect as magic. Some people, it doesn't matter what you pop in their mouth, they're going to get better because you pop something in their mouth. It wasn't because you put something in their mouth. That's the way it is with magic. I mean, stuff like the whole thing with St. Joseph, I mean, you see how absurd that is, don't you? And by the way, you know who St. Joseph is, don't you? Let's just be clear on this. Joseph, for starters, is not a saint. We know that. He isn't any kind of saint. Joseph was the earthly father of Jesus. He was not the biological dad. He was the stepdad of Jesus. And all we know about him is that he was the husband of Mary and that he was a carpenter. And then he disappears from the story never to reappear again. And any idea that we could make a statue of this guy that we don't know what he looked like and we really don't know anything else about his life and say, well, he's a saint and he's got magical power to help you sell your house says we are fools. And we've been willing to mix Christianity with magic because ultimately the point here is Jesus has got some magical little gifts to give you and he's going to probably send some with the Easter bunny to you. It's that absurd. You know, if you're going to believe that kind of magic, then I've got some magic for you. Let, let's just start something new today. Here's what I have to offer you. It's been a really hard season for a lot of people since 2008. The economy's downturn. A lot of people have lost their jobs. So I have a new spiritual formula for how you can get a job. If you do this, watch and see if you don't get a job. You go home, and if you're looking for a job this week, I want you to take out your Bible, and each morning before you walk out your door to go look for a job, I want you to open your Bible to the book of Job. You open to the book of Job and you read the first two chapters of the book of Job in your doorway as a declaration. And then you put your Bible down and you go and apply and you will get a job. Do it every day. Read from the book of Job and then go out and seek a job. And I'll guarantee you, some of you will get a job because magic, all magic works some of the time. And here's how it really works out. You know, if, if we actually taught that, if I laid that out there enough, I'll guarantee you somebody's going to come back and tell me face to face or they're going to send in an email and say, I couldn't believe it. I've been looking for a job for so long, but I did it. I read from the book of job every morning and I got a job that week. It works. And then I stand up and I tell you and everybody listening online, here's it really works. Let me tell you this personal testimony. And now more people read from the book of job and more people get jobs and they come back in with their stories. And then I write a book about how to get a job by reading the book of jobs. And then I can quit my job because I have a book. I have started new magic. That is how ridiculous some of this stuff is. 
Now, we can poke fun at getting a job by reading the book of Job and, and you know, burying St. Joseph. But I want to tell you, it is equally unchristian what a lot of people are preaching and teaching and seeking to practice where we've been given some type of spiritual formula that if I'll just do this plus this plus this, I've got to get this wonderful big result. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus did not have a message of how much easier and more pain-free your life is going to be as a result of Him. These are all the incredible results that you're going to get. Jesus instead taught a very different payoff a very different reward and result from following him. And here's the, the kind of surprising thing when you get to the heart of this. When we look now at what Jesus said would be the payoff of following him, some of you right now are going, so what in the world did he say? I'm fixing to share it with you. And I'm telling you, once you hear this today and you go back and read the Gospels, I can tell you what you'll discover. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. That It's one of those things that you kind of go, Oh, wow, really? Is, is that what he said the payoff is? And then you read the Gospels and it's like just chop full of this central truth. So let's take a look at what Jesus said the payoff is. And what we're going to do is we're going to home in on a, a passage. It's Matthew 10. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. And we're going to look at the beginning of Matthew 10 is a pretty well-known part of a, of a lengthy deal of Jesus talking with his disciples we love to preach and talk about the first half of Matthew 10 because it's Jesus has been doing ministry and the heart of his ministry has been preaching the message of the kingdom, healing the sick and casting out demons. And now Matthew 10 is this critical moment where he looks at the guys who've been around him and he says, now I'm going to send you out two by two and you're going to do exactly what you've seen me do. And they're probably just swallowing their tongues and shot right now going to what? Because he said, you're going to now heal the sick, you're going to cast out demons, and you're going to preach the message of the kingdom, and they've never done this before. They don't think they can do it. And so that's the first half, and, and that's exciting and amazing that they're able to do that. What we're going to home in on is in the second half, it's a rather obscure portion of the conversation where Jesus is ultimately going to help us see what the payoff is going to be as he explains what's really happening here. Let's listen in. Verse 16 of Matthew 10. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Whoa. Now, Jesus is peering into the future at what's going to happen. And he's giving his followers a little glimpse of something that they have no idea about. This is all news to them. We're going to read about in Acts how this actually gets lived out. But this doesn't in any way resemble what they've experienced up until now because the disciples are thinking and probably saying, wait a minute, no, we're extremely popular for following you. I mean, people didn't know us. They weren't that crazy about us. We were nothing special when we were fishermen. But now, Jesus, since we're associated with you, people are crazy about us because you do good stuff for people. You do amazing things and people like us now. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but soon that's going to change. You're going to be flogged in the very places where you worship now. When we talk about being flogged, this is not a little paddling. People who were flogged either died from it or they were scarred for life. If you've ever been flogged in Jesus' day, you don't want to go to the beach and take your shirt off. Because for the rest of your life, you will bear the scars. This is such a, a severe thing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Here's what's coming for you. Verse 18. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, 
Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute, Jesus. When they arrest us? What are you talking about? Is this like a parable? Are you fixing to tell us about scattering some seeds or something? I mean, what is the deal? Surely that's like a picture of some deeper spiritual reality. No, I'm talking about when they come and lock you up. This is not what we signed on for. I don't remember hearing about this the day you said, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and I'll I'll see you arrested and beaten to a pulp. You did not share that part. And he says, it's okay. You're going to be given the words to say by the Spirit of God. If I'm a disciple at that point, I want to go, can I just tell you, Jesus, I'm not right now so much worried about what I'm going to say in that moment. I mean, what I would like is a get out of jail free card in that moment. The words to say? I don't want words to say. If you're telling me I'm going to be arrested and God is going to be involved in my trial, let me tell you how I want God involved in my trial. I want to get off. I want to get out. Here's how I want God involved. I want Him to get me unarrested. Anybody else with me in that? These are not comforting words from Jesus at this point. This is a jaw-dropping, very redefining moment for the disciples. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death. And the father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Don't you know they're thinking at this point, this doesn't make any sense. Right now, everybody wants to get close to us because we're close to you. And you're the most amazing thing going on that anybody's ever heard of. And we look so special because we're close to you. And now you're saying that the tide is going to turn and people are going to hate us because of you. We just can't even begin to envision this. And now Jesus is going to take us to a really strange place of tension. Verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He's saying there's going to be a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty coming your way. But don't you fear that? Don't you fear those people who can do harm to your body? You fear only the one who could change the destiny of your soul. I'm a disciple at this point. I'm going, okay, let me get this straight. We're going to be arrested. And Jesus goes, yep, but don't be afraid. And we're going to be flogged. Yep, but don't be afraid. And we're going to be hated by everyone. Yep, but don't be afraid. Put on trial. Yep, no need to fear. And now Jesus introduces them and us to the principle that it took years for the disciples to grasp. It's the heart of the matter. Verse 29. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for one penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So, don't be afraid. You're worth more than than many sparrows. Prince, this is where Jesus is taking us. This is the payoff. This is the end result. He is leading us to a place where we have a faith that is so real, 
a relationship that is so solid that we now can have a faith that completely obliterates and overwhelms all fear. It is a faith that enables us to walk into every circumstance of life. It enables us to follow Christ into situations where it is so bad, life seems so confusing, so out of control, and it seems like Jesus isn't listening. It seems like we're far removed from God as we're following Jesus into this very difficult situation. And in the middle of all that, we have no fear whatsoever because we have a faith that is so rooted in Christ and His love for us. It's not scary at all. It's rooted in this real basic understanding that God knows you personally. And He values you so greatly that there's no reason to be afraid of what's going on. There's nothing out, outside of His notice. It's why He does the whole thing of saying, what about the sparrows? I mean, sparrows by the millions out here. And there's not a one of them that ever dies that God doesn't pay particular attention to what was happening in that sparrow's life and its death. He says, two of those sell for a penny, and God pays careful attention to them. And then think of yourself. You're so much more valuable than a sparrow. You're so valuable that today, in this very moment, God knows exactly how many hairs you have on your head. For some of us, it's not as many as we had when we went to bed last night, and God knows the count this morning. He's saying, everything about your body, every cell in your body, he knows what's going on with it. He knows everything that could go wrong, that is going wrong. He's paying attention and He cares so you don't have to be afraid. There's nothing that slips up on God. There's nothing that happens to you that the Holy Trinity is having to get together in an emergency session to figure out, oh my goodness, how do we let this one get by? What are we going to do? How are we going to save the day? We just we sort of lost focus for a moment. He's going, no, 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 no. You don't ever have to be afraid. You don't ever have to worry because he's paying attention. You belong to him and you matter. So he, here's what we can say about Jesus' message. Jesus' message was not, don't be afraid. I won't let bad things happen. No. Jesus' message was, don't be afraid when bad things happen. That's just not a very popular message. I'm not sure that book will sell. You know, you can sell 47 bazillion copies of your best life now. You can have it all now. One, two, three, poof, you get everything you want now. That sucker will sell. The book entitled Don't Be Afraid When Bad Things Happen. Hmm, that is just not quite as appealing. But this is the payoff Jesus promises. A faith that overcomes fear. Fearless faith. And you may be at this point saying, hmm, I was really looking for something a little sexier, a little more exciting, a little more rewarding than fearless faith. I'll tell you what, when you come to understand what this kind of faith does to change your life, you'll see why this is the payoff that Jesus advertised. Because this kind of faith, it leads us to wake up in the morning and be able to ask the question, okay, what would a guy like me do today if he knew everything he did today, God would be completely in that. God would protect me from everything that opposed me. God would just completely cover me in all that I was doing today. What, what would I do differently? I mean, think about it. What would you do with your life this week 
if you knew God was just all over you this week. He was going ahead of you. Anything the enemy do would, would do to oppose you or to cause problems for you, God is just there to make sure that you press on through and you win. You'd live differently, wouldn't you? Well, this kind of faith gives you that ability as you follow Christ to go, that's reality. God's just all over me. God's going before me. I don't have to be afraid. Whatever life would throw at me, good stuff, bad stuff, whatever, I don't have to be afraid of any of that. Jesus taught this principle over and over in the Scripture, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't about magic, and it's not leading us to a place of denial. It's leading us to a place of tremendous peace and confidence. If you back up four chapters, uh, I've put some of this in your notes here, but in, in uh, Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is driving on the same principle when He says in verse 30, of Matthew 6, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. You know, we can read that and go, but but we need to eat. And we need to drink. And we need to have clothes to wear. I mean, Jesus, without these things, we would die. And he's going, yeah, I get that. And you can just totally rest in that because I care about you so you don't have to fret about those things. So here's what this means. Financial crisis, you don't have to be afraid. Threat of bankruptcy. Going through bankruptcy, you don't have to be afraid. Foreclosure. God, I've got to have a place to live. I said, you don't have to be afraid of that. Major marital problems. This could lead to divorce. What if I actually go through a divorce? You don't have to be afraid. Health crisis. Terrible diagnosis from the doctor. It's so grim, we can't help. Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid of that. You can walk through all of these things and more. You can walk through seeing your kids live in rebellion, live lives that would, would burn an ulcer in another parent's stomach, and you can walk through that with no fear. Because you have this faith that is so rooted in the reality of who God is and how connected He is to your life, how much He loves you and really cares about you. He says, I mean, don't you understand? God... He is the one who causes the grass and the wildflowers to grow and to bloom like they do. And they're going to be scorched and gone tomorrow. I mean, they hardly last for a day. God is the one who takes care of all that. He gives them all that they need. He feeds the bird, birds. He feeds everything in creation. He's attentive to those things. And you're the crowning work. You're made in the image of God. He calls you family. He calls you the sons and daughters that He loves. And He is committed to take care of you. So... When it's really, really wild, you can rest. You can be without fear. Another of the passages where he teaches this same truth is in Mark chapter 4. The same story is recorded in Matthew chapter 8. Where Jesus and the disciples, it's like, I'm going to give you a lesson in this fearless faith thing. He takes them in the boat and they go out on the Sea of Galilee and they're crossing over. And a furious, terrible storm 
comes up. Now, I happen to agree with the theologians who say, you know, I've heard people try and explain how quickly storms can come on the Sea of Galilee. I don't believe for a minute that this is a natural storm. I don't think this is a natural event. The scriptures say that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. There's a reason that he's called that. I, I truly believe, and if there's a reason for believing this, that what happens that day is an attempt by the kingdom of darkness to completely snuff out Jesus in this movement. I mean, think about it from their perspective. We've got Jesus and his 12 most trusted understudies, his 12 lieutenants all in one boat. If we can take that boat down, we can snuff out the whole movement. So they get in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, conjure up the worst storm you can imagine. I mean, these are fishermen, and it's the worst day of their lives in a boat. They get out in the middle, and it's just, it's insane. It's beyond just a storm. It's, it's a... It's like a supernatural, I think it literally is a supernatural storm that's just everything focused on this one boat. They can't make any headway. The waves are so constantly breaking on the boat that the boat is rapidly filling with water. It's going to sink and, and they're freaking out. And finally, just, I mean, they, they look around and realize this is insane. We're all about to die here. And Jesus is in the boat. And what's he doing? He's not helping to bail the boat. He is asleep in the stern of the boat. He's on a little cushion back there. It's nap time for Jesus. And the disciples finally, in terror, scream out, Jesus, we are perishing to death. That's a phrase my grandmother used to use. I'm just perishing to death over here. I thought that was a funny one. That's literally what they say. We are perishing to death. Do you not care? That is such a great line. Because they're saying out loud what we feel and think in the worst of times, aren't they? You know... I, I know every one of us probably have lived in our own version of that moment. It, it wasn't on a lake, but it was a very real circumstance of life. And the waves began to break on you and the boat that you were in started filling up. And you looked around and realized if this keeps up, the boat is going down. This is bad. And you start looking around for Jesus and it just feels like Jesus is asleep. If Jesus is anywhere close by, he is taking a nap and you're screaming for help and the storm isn't getting any better. And here's the really wild thing that happens next. They wake Jesus up and he gets up and Jesus responds to some indication as to the source of the storm. He rebukes the storm. I don't know why you would rebuke weather. I think we're supposed to see through that. It's not really the wind so much that's getting rebuked as the prince of the power of the air that he's rebuking, he, said, he, he tells them essentially, shut up. You be quiet and you be still. Sounds a lot like how we pray when we take authority. You be silent and you, you go. He, he takes authority over what has stirred this up, makes it be still, and instantly the water is calm and the wind is calm. And then Jesus looks at his disciples who don't know what in the world they're witnessing and in Mark 4.40, he says to the disciples, Why are you still so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You guys really upset. What's that about? Do you, do you still just not have any faith? And I can just picture the disciples who are just, you know that their knees are just shaking like crazy. And they're like, In, in, in case you didn't notice, there was like a real bad storm here just a few minutes ago. Jesus is going, yeah, I know, I was in the boat. Yeah, but you were, you were asleep, Jesus. Yeah, but I was in the boat. Why were you afraid? I mean, did you think for one moment 
that there was even the remotest possibility that we would die out here today with me in the boat with you. Why would you possibly be afraid? Jesus is essentially the one who's able to look at the situation and go, guys, you thought I was completely zoned out and not attuned to what was going on because I was taking a little nap. Look, guys, I knew there was a storm. I knew the boat was filling with water and I knew that only four of you could swim. I knew everything that mattered in this situation. I had it fully under control when it looked completely out of control. Friends, that picture needs to settle in for a lot of us. Because some of you right now, you're in the storm of your life. And some of you, you're on calm seas today, but in the coming year, you're going to sail into the storm of your life and you don't see it coming. And it's going to hit fast and furious and the demons of hell are going to try and make it impossible for you. And there, for some of you right now, you are at a place where the waves have just overwhelmed the boat that you're riding in and it feels like, I I think I'm about to go down. I think I may die here. I think this may be my physical death. This may be my financial death. This, this may be the death of everything that I cared about. This may be the death of the most important relationship of my life. This may be the death of my marriage. This is it. I, I don't think I can survive this. I don't see how I could live if this happens. It's completely overwhelming. And Jesus is saying, the gift I want to give you today is a faith that allows you to be in the boat in the worst storm when you're hearing the worst report, when it's a mess at the bank, when your house has been on the market for five years and you're 14 payments behind, when the doctor has said there is no hope, there is nothing we can do, when you look at your kids and for the umpteenth time they're in trouble with the law or they're, you know, they're hooked, they're messed up, whatever it is. He says, you know what? You're going to be able to press right on through this and not even have to be afraid. You're not just going to survive. I am developing in you a faith that it's not even going to rattle you or make you afraid as you walk through that. That sounds pretty good to me. I know a lot of us probably look at that and go, that sounds great. I don't have that. Let me just say, if you feel that way, I hadn't arrived there either. That's why this isn't a little one message truth. This is where Jesus is taking us. This is the payoff. This is come follow me and guess what's going to happen. Guess what the result is going to be. Oh, along the way, there's going to be some great days. There's going to be some glorious times and there are going to be some terrible storms. There are going to be some Sometimes of terrible opposition, you're going to get mistreated. But let me tell you, I am taking you to a place where it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how bad the storm gets. You're not going to be afraid. In fact, you're just going to gain confidence at every step along the way. It took the disciples a few years to get to that point. Because throughout the the three and a half years that Jesus did ministry with them, we never once see them really embracing and having the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here. As he keeps looking and going, really? Still don't have any faith. Still don't have any peace. Still don't have any confidence. I want to tell you, after three and a half years, they go through the awful blackness of Jesus' arrest. Jesus' beatings. His public trials. His public execution. They go through the absolute torment 
of watching him die and mourning his death. But just a few weeks later, that faith that Jesus has been sowing into their hearts, that it's like, man, is that, is that seed ever going to sprout? Is it ever going to grow into anything meaningful? It's like at the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that thing just finally breaks loose up out of the ground and now there is a faith that emerges that gives so much confidence that from that point forward for the rest of their lives, you could threaten anything to them. You could do anything to them. It didn't matter. You couldn't shut them up. You couldn't lock them up. You couldn't slow them up in a way that would keep them from standing with confidence and saying, you decide whether it's better for us to obey you or God. The very people who put Jesus to death would come and lock these guys up. They would flog them just like Jesus said that, that they would. They'd beat the tar out of them. They'd lock them up and leave them bleeding in there. And then they'd pull them out and they'd say, we want to be clear about this. You ever go out and speak in Jesus' name again, we're going to lock you up. We're going to beat you. We may just go ahead and kill you the same way we killed Jesus. And those guys, without a moment of hesitation, without a heart being in their throat or any sense of fear, could just smile back and say, guys, we, we've already got this clear in our minds. You're telling us to shut up. Jesus is telling us to speak up. We're real clear on who's in charge. You can lock us up, but you cannot stop us. We're not afraid of you. We have a faith that is fearless. This kind of faith totally overwhelms fear. So I don't care what you say to me. You can threaten me. Doctor, you can come in and tell me I've got this terrible disease and there's no hope. Well, let me tell you, I know the author of hope and it ain't you. His name is Jesus. Mr. Banker, you can tell me. It's a mess. It's a wreck. But you ain't my provider. Boss man, you can give me a pink slip. You can tell me there is no job. But you cannot tell me that there is no provision because Jesus is my provider. He feeds the birds. He waters the grass. They never go without. And I matter so much more to Jesus than any of those things in creation do. So don't tell me, oh, it's time to panic. Oh, we don't know what to do. We know what to do. Put Put your hope in God. That's why David would say to himself again and again, Why so troubled, O my soul? Put your hope in God. He's got it under control. This didn't surprise him. I don't know what you're facing, but I know this. You can put your heart at rest and put your hope in God because you matter so much to Him. Now, we may look at that and go, Hmm. Of all the things that Jesus could offer as a result of following him, he could rightly say, you get to go to heaven. You're going to be a better person. There are going to be blessings because there are blessings that accompany those who obey God. You know, blessing follows obedience. He could have said all those things. But what he said is sometimes along the way, you're going to have great difficulty. But the good news is you're going to have a faith, a peace that you don't ever have to fear. You're just going to have this fearless faith. Why is that the thing that he points out? We could name a lot of reasons. I'm going to mention a couple as we wrap up. First of all, because overwhelming faith honors God. Think about it as a parent. You overhear your child talking to someone one day and they go, Yeah, I know. My dad did that. and I don't know why he would do that. But it's okay. It's all good because I trust my dad. That'd make you feel pretty good as a parent, wouldn't it? 
And that's what this kind of faith does. Because trust me, there are going to be plenty of times where you're going to look around and go, I don't see God at all. I, I don't see how he's going to provide. I don't see how he's going to heal. I don't see how he's going to take care of this. I don't I don't see anything taking shape. It seems like right now my prayers are just pretty much bouncing off the ceilings. But I know my father. I don't have to see the results yet. I don't have to feel the ground shaking yet. I don't have to see the evidence of what's going to happen. I don't even have to know what the outcome is going to be. I just know my father. and He's good. And he is so partial to his own kids. And I've got a special place in his heart. So, shoot, it's okay. That kind of just overcoming, bold, audacious faith that says, hey, the children of God, we've got a special place in this world. I mean, God looks after the whole earth. But when it comes to his kids, I mean, you know how parents are with their kids. Don't mess with my kids. God's that way about me because I'm his. That kind of faith, it honors God. And then finally, we'll just say this overwhelming faith also frees us to love just at radical levels. And that's so much of what this is all about. God loves the world. God is is here to reach the world. And he's teaching us to be the ones who represent that in very tangible ways. And that's hard to do. When the world hates you and is cruel to you. And when you have this kind of faith developed in you, it gives you a capacity to love your enemies, to pray for and care for the people who threaten you the most. That boss who's unfair and who's who's cruel in the way that he treats you, that ex-spouse who's got partial custody of your children, who wants to make a hellish life experience for you. You get to the place, you just have a different set of parameters for who and how you love when you have this kind of faith because you're not threatened by, you're not afraid of that boss or that ex-spouse or whatever they could try and stir up because you're, you're so confident that God is in control. He's so big. He's so involved. It changes the parameters of who and what we can love. First John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Again and again, the theme of Jesus, I'm giving you a faith where you don't have to fear. And he's saying love and fear are incompatible. When you're afraid, you, you have not come to understand how much God loves you. I mean, that's not complicated, but that, that is like some of the most basic truth of the day. When, when I'm afraid, it's so rooted in the fact that I'm just not clear in how much God loves me. Because if I was, I would know I do not have to be afraid. But then the, the other result of that is when I get to that place of recognizing and just resting in God's great love for me and all that's going to mean. Now I'm freed up to love other people because I'm not afraid of what you're going to do to me. Some people live so afraid of being hurt and being done wrong because you have been burned badly. You've been cheated on. You've been lied to. You have been just done so dirty. And it leaves us at a place where we're like this. I mean, I've been there. I've been there you know, coming out of a divorce. It just left me like this for a long time. But over time, you come to realize, hey, God's in control. And it's, it's actually okay to just reach out and love people who may not love me back, who may not be kind to me. They may hurt me. They may do things that I don't want them to do. And it's okay because God is so in control, He's not going to have anything slip up on Him or slip by Him. 
that puts us at a safe place. So what Jesus is wanting to do to, to teach us to not be afraid, not be afraid to love, not be afraid of what's going on around us. Have you ever met anybody like that? You ever met anybody with a fearless faith? They are amazing people. They're not living in denial. They're not just ignorant. It's easy to kind of look at them and go, well, if you just knew what I knew, you'd be more afraid. You'd not, they're probably just too stupid to know how afraid they ought to be. You ever thought that when you looked at people? It's like, if you just realized what a financial mess you're in, if you just realized how you know, grim your future is, you'd know to be afraid. No, these people have a faith that it doesn't matter. You know, that they face joblessness. They, they face that awful report from the doctor. And instead of going, oh, what are we going to do? This is terrible. They go, wow, that wasn't what I was hoping for, but let's just see what God has. I mean, God must be up to something here. I mean, I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. But God allowed it. So, I mean, God must be fixing to do something here. I want to see what God's going to do. I mean, when the need is big, that means God's going to show up big in some way. So let's watch and see what God's going to do here. Jesus is leading us to a place of having that kind of faith. And I don't know if there's anybody in the Bible other than Jesus that we see who better exemplifies this kind of faith than the Apostle Paul. He didn't get the advantage of walking around with Jesus on earth for three and a half years. He said he was the apostle abnormally born. He got tacked on at the end. And Paul said this, he, he suffered through so many hardships and attempts at killing him, so much difficulty. And yet he learned to live with his peace, without fear. And he says, and we know, Romans eight twenty eight. and we know, say it with me, church. And we know, not we hope, not we pray, not we wish. And we know that in all things, somebody say all things. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. You can't say that until you have a faith that's getting solid. And we know without any doubt that God works in all these things. It doesn't mean God causes these things. There's evil in the world. There's still tragedy. And God says, I'll take whatever comes your way and I'll be so big, so good. I'll work it out for your good. How many of you ever had that happen? Something happened that you just went, oh my goodness, that's the worst thing that could have happened. That's the last outcome that I would have ever wanted. And when it's all said and done, you look back and go, good night. I mean, it's not that that thing was good, but the results that came, some of the best that I've ever had in my life. How could that be? How could God take something as terrible as a divorce or a lost job or an awful sickness, a battle with a disease? How could God work that for good? Because he is that good. That's what Paul is saying. And he goes on to say in verse 35. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or a hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Should joblessness or wild kids or diminishing health or an unfaithful spouse, should any of those things separate us from the love of God? And the answer is a resounding no, of course not. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I may not be there yet, but I am committed to this. I'm committed to following Jesus. And 
he's committed to working into me and into you a faith that enables us to press into the storm, press into the fire, press into the darkness with nothing more than a little whisper in my ear of him saying, I love you. You don't have to be afraid. You do not have to fear. I am with you. Don't be afraid. And that's enough. Jesus said, closing words, in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me, in me, in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, you can promise me all kinds of junk, but this is what I want. I want a faith that's that solid. Don't promise me magic. Don't promise me one, two, three, send in my donation and I'll get a prayer cloth that I can rub on and pray on and, you know, get what I want. I don't believe that junk. I don't want your junk for six ninety eight from Amazon. What I want is a faith that is rooted in a personal relationship with the Jesus who knows me and who loves me and who in the middle of the storm, when it seems like he's just dead asleep, is so attentive to what's going on. I want that kind of relationship with the God who says, you know what, even if the boat goes down, I walk on water. And I make the people next to me walk on water. You just hang with me. You can sleep in the boat with me while the storm is raging. I want that kind of faith. I'm not there yet, but I am finding there's a lot less in life that frightens me because Jesus has become so real. I see that same kind of faith being worked into you. Don't you want that? I do. I do. That's the payoff. Would you join me as we go together to him in prayer? Father, thank you for the sweet personal invitation that you make for each one of us to follow Christ, to know you through your son. Thank you that you're building in us a faith that's real, that's solid. Thank you that it's not built on magic and and just junk, but that it really is rooted in how much you love us and care for us. Would you please help us to rest in that? Help us to follow you. I pray today, Lord, for a gift of faith. Some of us today are, are in the middle of a storm. Some people today just hit them right in the heart because they're walking through a storm. God, I thank you that a part of how you express your love for us, your presence and your provision for us is from within the body that you put people around us to love us and pray for us and stand with us. I pray that even today as we wrap up that you would just, that you'd allow ministry to happen right here within the body, that you would stir up a faith within us, but you'd also build our faith through the way that we love and pray for each other. And we just welcome your work. We trust you for the future. And we pray, Lord Jesus, we, we believe you. Help us in our hours of unbelief. Help us to have a faith that isn't afraid. We welcome you in our lives and we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.